Welcome back, y'all, to another episode of the What in the Sam Hill podcast, where I investigate paranormal phenomena, high strangeness, cryptozoology, ancient mythology, and the delightfully odd. I am your host and resident nerd, Aaron. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to encourage you to check out the Substack. There we have show notes for each episode that contain relevant links to papers and articles used in research for the episode, as well as links to my metaphysical newsletter, The Moonbeam Mirror. I also want to encourage you to subscribe to the show, leave a review, and share the podcast with your friends. Let's build a community of weirdos together. This week, I want to talk about the Bell Witch of Adams, Tennessee, just north of Nashville. The Bell Witch was a poltergeist-like haunting of the family of John and Lucy Bell that originally occurred in 1817 through 1820 or 1821, culminating in the supposed poisoning death of John Bell at the hands of the spirit. The spirit then went dormant for a time, returning to haunt John Bell Jr. in 1828, haunting the printer of the Bell Witch account in 1894, possibly haunting the oldest living descendant of John Bell in the 1930s, and occasionally haunting what has become known as Bell Witch Cave to this day. Known as America's most famous ghost story, there have been numerous versions of this story told over the decades, including a wild version used by the Soil Conservation Service in 1941 to promote better land use. Thankfully, there are many facts of the case that can be verified in the historical record to help parse fact from legend from blatant fiction. Um, Right off the top, I want to thank Pat Fitzhugh from bellwitch.org. Not only has Pat been researching the legend of the Bell Witch for some like 40 years or so, but also he has taken the time to coalesce historical information that isn't so easily accessible online, such as the Red River Baptist Church meeting minutes. All of this was a great help to me in my research. Unfortunately, the nature of researching a new topic every week means you are time limited, and the work of other researchers who have coalesced information into one location without passing judgment on it is extremely helpful. We truly thrive as a community of researchers, and it's important to remember that no one researcher is an island. The links to Pat Fitzhugh's work will naturally be on the Substack, and I encourage everyone to check that out because he does have more information than I will be able to cover here today. So let's get into parsing out fact from fiction and why I quite frankly think this story is bollocks. First things first, these initial events happened in 1817 to 1820, but the first in-depth account was not published until 1894, when newspaper editor Martin Van Buren Ingram sold an 800-page tome about the affair. That is always going to make me suspicious, because there's just too much time between the events and the documentation. Supposedly, Ingram was a family friend of the Bells who agreed to only publish after the death of anyone directly involved in the matter, because it was a raw memory for them. But that also means that anyone who could have refuted the claims or sued for defamation and libelous harassment is dead. There is a portion of Ingram's account which was supposedly written in the 1840s by Richard Williams Bell, the second youngest child of John and Lucy Bell, who would have been six when the haunting started. But an expert analysis of the writing style indicates that Ingram probably wrote that portion as well. This isn't surprising if you look at Ingram's history either. Ingram had been the editor of the Clarksville Tobacco Leaf until it merged with Crosstown rival the Clarksville Chronicle in 1890. Ingram doesn't seem to have remained involved past the merger, so he may have written this as his magnum opus in an effort to regain some standing in the community. 
He apparently even tried to sell his book to printers in Chicago, but ended up settling for a local printer. Even in his newspaper work, though, Ingram had a reputation for sensationalizing and perhaps even inventing stories. In 1879, Ingram's rival, The Chronicle, published a blurb from their editor saying, The missing woman and her frog, alluded to in The Last Tobacco Leaf, when last seen, was going down the Princeton Railroad in an iron wagon at a 2.40 gate with Martin Ingram as the driver. That certainly suggests to me that they felt he was creating news. So Martin Ingram has a reputation for a colorful relationship with the truth and probably wrote the supposed first-hand account portion of his narrative himself. But do we have any proof that his facts are wrong? Well, yes. Even little things like the fact that Kate Batts, the supposed perpetrator of the haunting, paraded around town with her slaves and that her husband was an invalid. The historical record shows Kate and Frederick Batts were never wealthy enough to own slaves, and Frederick was healthy enough to work on local road crews maintaining the roads around town. This all combines to cast plenty of doubt on Ingram's tale, and any of the supposed facts within it. We don't necessarily need to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we do need to be skeptical. Newspaper articles in the lead-up to Ingram's book reference the legend being common knowledge in the area, so it does seem like some legend does predate Ingram, but it almost certainly is not what Ingram had published. Which brings me next to the printer of Ingram's book, William P. Titus. He claimed that the Bell Witch haunted the publication of Ingram's book and that several members of his staff refused to work on it. This is almost assuredly a complete fabrication born out of a need to drum up hype around the book despite its publication being over a month behind schedule. I don't think we can count this marketing tactic against the Bell Witch legend, but it's definitely not a mark in its favor. But what of the legend itself? Some say the haunting was done by the ghost of Kate Batts. That's blatantly ahistorical. Even cursory research will show that Kate Batts outlived both John and Lucy Bell, dying in 1843. But Ingram's version doesn't make me any more convinced. He said that the spirit identified itself as Old Kate Batts Witch, as in a spirit controlled by Kate Batts. This is a major red flag, as it means that Kate Batts would not have been able to prove her innocence by showing she wasn't in the area, had she still been alive in 1894, of course. This is similar to the spectral evidence used in the Salem witch trials. If I can say you don't have to be present to commit a crime, I can say you did anything. And unfortunately, many people in the witch trials of America and Europe were hung on the basis of spectral evidence alone. This makes me feel that Kate Batts is the scapegoat at the heart of a witch hunt. Another thing that makes this feel untrue is that the Bats and Bell families both immigrated to the area from Edgecombe County, North Carolina, and they were heavily intermarried, as one would expect in such a tight-knit, small community. Lucy Bell's sister Elizabeth was married to Jeremiah Bats, and Kate, who was married to Jeremiah's brother Frederick, was the daughter of Lucy Bell's brother. So Kate wasn't some old hag on the outskirts of town. She was Lucy Bell's niece and the cousin to John and Lucy's children. Surely it would have been quite the hubbub for something so vindictive to happen between family members. What does seem to have happened is that John Bell, for whatever reason, had a habit of getting into disputes. Not only did he have a land dispute with a neighbor Josiah Fort in 1816, 
the details of which are unclear as they were crossed through in the Red River Baptist Church meeting minutes, but also John Bell had a huge blowout with his brother-in-law, Jeremiah Batts, over the price of a slave. That ordeal was recorded in the meeting minutes, and it also just happens to coincide with the timeline of the hauntings. The story goes that John Bell purchased a slave from Jeremiah Batts for $100. After the sale, for whatever reason, Jeremiah developed seller's remorse, and he felt that he could get more money for the slave elsewhere. When Jeremiah asked for the slave back, John said, sure, but it'll cost you $150. That upset Jeremiah, but he still wanted his slave back. When he came to collect, John, I guess, decided to give him the friends and family discount and drop the price to $120. That still left Jeremiah with a bad taste in his mouth, so he took the issue to the church council. When they refused to sanction John, probably both because he was a wealthy landowner in the area and an elder in the church, Jeremiah got the law involved. John was found guilty of usury, which is essentially a fancy term for loan sharking. This forced the hand of the church, who decided to excommunicate John, which would have been a very big deal in such a small community and would certainly have had social ramifications for his family. Some feel this conflict is the reason Kate Batts was named as the perpetrator, but I don't think so. Kate wasn't even Jeremiah's wife. If the real issue was with Jeremiah, I would have expected Jeremiah or his wife Elizabeth to have faced accusations. I do think, though, that this stress may have been a compounding factor in John Bell's death. I really doubt a ghost could have poisoned him. It's possible someone in his family poisoned him, or he had a neurodegenerative condition, as other researchers have suggested. It's also possible he was just old. Lucy Bell was at the tail end of her child-rearing years when the hauntings began, but John was 20 years older. He was 70 when he died in 1820. Now, how many people have you heard of retiring and then dying a month later? It's possible that the excommunication may have just made him feel like his life was over, so he gave up the ghost, if you'll pardon the pun. It's also possible he poisoned himself to allow his family to move on from his mistakes. I'm not sure if we will ever find proof either way. Regardless, we have these church meeting minutes describing John Bell's conflicts, but we have no church records of a supposed haunting related to witchcraft. Surely the Baptists would have had something to say if they felt the devil was working in their community. Actually, despite reports that thousands of curious onlookers made their way to Adams, Tennessee to see the ghost for themselves, eating John Bell at a house and home, including the General Andrew Jackson, who would later become president, there is no record of these rubbernecking hordes in the church minutes, the regional newspapers, Andrew Jackson's personal papers, or the local school teacher's diary. Now, I live in a small town. I love small towns. But small town newspapers will publish if your third cousin came home from the big city for Easter dinner. You're telling me, that over the course of just a couple years, thousands of people came through a town of just a couple hundred and there's no record? I doubt it. It seems far more likely that any economic repercussions in John Bell's household would have been from the excommunication and not from some plague of human locust looky-loos. So with all of that said, I want to talk about Betsy Bell. 
because that is where this story gets interesting. Betsy was the youngest daughter of John and Lucy Bell, and she would have been 11 or 12 when the haunting started. Betsy, along with John, were the primary targets of the haunting. Initially, I was thinking that this may have been a way to cover up a little roll in the hay with a boyfriend, but it seems like the reports are a little more intense than that. Supposedly, Betsy ended up with visible welts and bruises, leaving some to believe John Bell or someone else in her life may have been physically abusive. There's certainly no evidence to support this, though, so I don't want to hastily make such a strong accusation. But according to the legend, Betsy did have a boyfriend. They say she was engaged to Joshua Gardner, one of her classmates that was six years her senior. The spirit allegedly told her to stop seeing the Gardner boy, and the stress of the haunting caused Betsy to end the engagement in 1821. Sad, maybe, but then the story gets weirder. Apparently, Betsy's teacher Richard Powell, who was 10 years her senior, had taken a shine to her and didn't appreciate her being engaged to Joshua. Some say Richard's constant hovering was one of the reasons Betsy's engagement to Joshua was ended. Conveniently, in 1821, just after the death of John Bell, the teacher's secret wife, Esther Powell, died. Esther was 18 years older than Richard, which was even more unusual then than it is now. Sugar mama, perhaps? Betsy and Richard started dating and married three years later when Betsy was 18 and Richard was 28. Many questions remain about Richard Powell and their relationship. Why did he marry someone 18 years his senior who presumably would not have been able to bear children? Why did he hide the fact that he was married within the town? Why were he and his wife not living together? Again, these are questions we may not have answers to. But that takes us to the earliest found accounts of the Bell Witch haunting. As it turns out, Ingram wasn't the first account of this phenomenon, just the longest. Ingram's book references an 1849 Saturday Evening Post article that blamed Betsy Bell for the haunting. It supposedly had to be retracted because Betsy was so furious she threatened to sue for defamation. Not that she could have proven damages given that she was a poor widow. Richard Powell had ascended all the way to public office before having a massive stroke at the height of his career. Supposedly last-ditch efforts in alternative means of income shattered the family's savings, and Richard died in 1848. Now, researchers can't seem to find the original article referenced by Ingram, but it seems that the article was reprinted in at least two papers in 1854. From the Green Mountain Freeman, we have the following. Seeing in a late post a notice of the celebrated Cockland Ghost of London, I am reminded of another ghost of which I have not before thought for years, that made a great noise and created a tremendous excitement at the time. It made its appearance in Robertson County, Tennessee, some 30 years ago, or upwards, at the house of an old Mr. Bell. Hence I call it the Tennessee Ghost, or perhaps I had better call it the Bell Ghost, as it seemed to have visited his house on account of a daughter he had familiarly called Miss Betsy Bell. It was in the form of a voice speaking in different parts of the house. It generally, as ghosts are wont to do, manifested itself only in the night. And, if I am not mistaken, the lights had all to be put out before it would speak. It would be heard sometimes in one part of the house and sometimes in another, 
moving about from the floor, under the floor, and the walls to the beds, open space in the middle of the house, the roof, etc. The ghost would converse freely with persons, and such was the excitement it created that the house was constantly thronged from persons from all parts of the country, coming even 50 miles or more to hear it. When asked how long it was going to remain, it would reply, until Joshua Gardner and Betsy Bell get married. Now, Mr. Gardner was a very, very likely young man who resided in the neighborhood and with whom the writer of this subsequently became well acquainted. Such was the number of people who thronged the house night after night that they came near eating old Mr. Bell out of house and home. But the thing could not always last. The spell of enchantment was destined to be broken. It turned out that Miss Betsy Bell was a ventriloquist, had, for some circumstance, become aware of the possession of such powers, had fallen in love with Mr. Gardner, and wished him to marry her, and had fallen upon this plan to bring about a matrimonial union. But Joshua Gardner and Betsy Bell never married, and the ghost at length vanished into air, as is generally the end of all ghosts. There are numbers now living in Robertson County, Tennessee, and elsewhere, who heard this ghost and were well acquainted with the circumstances. This version of events is very different from Ingram's legend, and is actually corroborated by another, even earlier account, this one from the 1820 journal of a Captain John R. Bell, unrelated to the bells of the legend. Rather, a singular circumstance was here related to me of a young girl of about 15 years of age, residing but three miles from Murphy. A voice accompanies her, which says she should marry a man, a neighbor. Thousands of persons have visited her to hear this voice. In many instances, it will reply to questions put to it. The visitors have left as little satisfied in their curiosity as before they heard it. Many are under the impression that it is ventriloquism imposed upon the hearers either by the girl or her brother, who it seems is generally in her company. Her family is respectable. Well, 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 Miss Betsy Bell. I do still doubt that thousands came to experience the phenomenon, um, but I will note that both of these early accounts are being relayed to us by somebody else, so these are not by witnesses who would have seen the thousands coming through. I do find it extremely interesting that in the original accounts, the voice was telling Betsy to marry Joshua, and in the Ingram legend, the voice was telling Betsy to not marry Joshua. That difference is critical. Also, the fact that the voice only performed when the lights went out certainly points to the claim that Betsy, perhaps with the aid of her brother, was responsible. Plus, you'll notice that none of the other family members seem to experience any haunting in these original accounts. It all centered on Betsy. So, if the voice was telling Betsy to marry Joshua, why wouldn't they have married? My thought is that she was never engaged to Joshua at all. Or if she was, the split happened because of the embarrassment of the excommunication and not because of any haunting. And this fact being told to a national audience in the Saturday Evening Post just after Betsy was widowed probably was salt in the wound of her childhood embarrassment. Instead of taking it on the chin, though, I think she found a different target for her anger. And I think it was Betsy who worked with Martin Ingram to make sure the new version of events got told. Again, conveniently after none of the participants were alive to discount it. 
But why Kate Batts? The answer to that lies, in my opinion, in a rumor told to Pat Fitzhugh in his research. Per his website, a prominent member of the Red River Settlement saw on numerous occasions Mrs. Batts and Professor Richard Powell making eyes at each other and talking privately some distance away from everyone else. This was passed down through the witness's family. I am not at liberty to divulge the source per an agreement. I think Pat hit gold with that one. My guess is that Betsy Bell was a spoiled rich kid who invented the haunting in an effort to get the older Joshua Gardner to notice her and marry her. When that didn't work, she settled for marrying the professor. But she was not the true object of the professor's affections. Apparently, both Kate and Betsy were tall women. And being cousins, I'm sure they probably didn't look so unalike. The professor may have himself settled for Betsy since Kate was already accounted for. He certainly couldn't have stolen another man's wife if he was aiming for public office in 1820-whatever. It's also possible that Richard Powell married Betsy Bell for her dad's money. Compared to the relative poorness of Kate Batts, Betsy Bell might have looked like a golden ticket, especially for someone who was aiming for public office. So Betsy Bell didn't get the man she wanted and settled for a man who would have preferred her cousin. Then she got knocked off her pedestal yet again with her husband's stroke, which left the family destitute. In my humble opinion, Betsy Bell was a bitter woman who made up a tall tale about her cousin haunting their family as revenge for her cousin being the apple of her husband's eye, and all of us who have repeated this tale over the years are just giving Betsy the last laugh. In homage to my husband's current obsession with old Saved by the Bell episodes, allow me to say... Betsy Bell was trash. That's going to wrap it up for this week's episode. If you have had any experiences or thoughts that you want to share related to the Bell Witch, please leave a comment on the Substack post. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the matter and continue the conversation. Until next time, in the immortal words of Euripides, question everything, learn something, answer nothing. See you next week.